I am finally at the end of this season of the year, and I'm going to use air quotes for our family vacation. Um, some of you don't understand why I use air quotes. I will tell you, um, there is a difference between vacation and vacation. Okay. I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old. <laughs> They're not listening. Before they came in the world, our life was definitely, you know, less complete, but there was vacation. Now there's vacation, right? We have a great time with them, but their idea of vacation totally differs from mine. My idea of vacation is rest, relax, and no itinerary, no schedule. And the answer to most questions is whatever I want, right? When do you want to get up tomorrow? Whenever I want. When do you want to go to bed? Whenever I want. What do you want to eat? Whatever, whenever I want. There's no calories on vacation. That's what vacation is like for me. What I'd like it to be like, now it's, you know, how much can we cram into the day? How much can we do? And now that they're getting older with my boys, it's how much can we cram into the suitcase? How much can we cram into the car? I don't like packing for vacationing. Don't enjoy it. Um, it's a necessary evil. How many of you are of the mentality, I pack as little as possible. I like to pack light. Where's my pack lighters? Okay, my few friends? Okay. How many of you are cram all that I possibly can? Okay, you're the glampers. You're the, yeah, got it. Okay. Um, I understand I have three of them in my family. And this year, uh, you know, I we broke our vacation up two ways. We, we, we took a a family vacation, all four of us, one vehicle, one place. We went there for a week and then uh, came back and worked for a week. And then last Sunday after church, I took the nine-year-old with me and um, I made a, we, we kind of made a deal when he was four that we would try and see all 30 Major League Baseball stadiums before he graduates from high school. I did that having no idea how much that would cost, how complicated that would be, um, We're doing okay on it. It might take, we've had to get him adjusted the idea that if it takes longer than graduation from high school, it's okay. We've been to nine of them now. Um, And so the second part of our vacation, just he and I took a quick trip to Atlanta. So his favorite team is the Braves because he was born in Atlanta. So we went to the Braves and saw two games um, between the Braves and the Padres down there. Um, It's different packing for a road trip versus a plane trip. Right. So this year we had a smaller car than we did last year to take on vacation. And so my mind is let's take less things. And here's how my brain goes for vacation. I don't need to impress anybody. Um, I'm not going to be sitting in front of a camera where people are going to make comments about what I'm wearing. Doesn't matter. We have a washer and dryer where we're going. I need two outfits. That's it. So two outfits. I'm done. Swim trunks done. You know, I was packed. I was like, I'm going to take the lead for the family. And I think I can get all three of the guys clothes in one suitcase so it takes us room and we'll give my wife an entire suitcase because ladies I realize they're just for some reason just more things you need clothes and canisters and devices and appliances and things and they're all necessary I get it so separate right and I was doing really well and I was able to fit everything absolutely necessary with nothing extra into the car until it came time to leave As I'm loading the boys into the car, the questions began, Dad, did you pack my blanket? There's blankets where we're going. But no, it's not my blanket. I have to go in and get it. 
and goes one. Dad, did you pack my Pikachu? No, I, did. I need to go in and get it. Brings out life-size Pikachu. Uh, did you pack my pillow? No, there's pillows. No, but I want my pillow. Well, if he has his pillow, I need my pillow. 45 minutes later, the car is bursting at the seams. I mean, there was like two coffee makers. There was bike pumps. We weren't even taking a bike. There was just a bike pump in there. It's like, I just gave up. And so, you know, we took all the things. But when I fly, it's different. This is about carry-on only. How many of you, when you fly, are carry-on only? Okay, a few of you. Thank you, Moses. Uh, how many of you are, check the bag, take as much as I can? Okay, okay. Some of you don't know what you are. Ask your traveling companions. They will tell you. Well, I'm trying to teach my... This is the first year that I flew with Chase where I required the nine-year-old to pull his own luggage. Like, there's just a certain rite of passage in a boy's life. It was different when I grew up, and I didn't know what an airplane was until I was in high school. But, I mean, now it's like, okay, you're going to pull your own luggage. Pretty soon he's going to push a lawnmower. There's just things you've got to learn to cut your teeth and be an hour. And uh, this year, he, you know, he had to pull the luggage along. So I have two same-size hard shell, spinny wheel handle, you know, carry-ons and then the tiny little backpack we can put under our seat and my thing is we're going for four days it's two boys baseball games minimal least amount how many of you are like let's see how little i can take get it in the carry-on thing how many of you like i will cram every inch full of my suitcase until it bursts and i get a friend to stand on it okay learn a lot about some of you today well, I tried to leave just a little extra space because my son is a collector of all things. And he'd be like, well, Dad, I want to keep the tissue box from the hotel we stayed at in Georgia. Because, I'm like, no, like that's just not necessary. Um, but I just know how he is. And so I left a little space in there. So he's pulling his own suitcase, which was great until escalators. And then because he's not a problem solver, I had to kind of step in and take over the suitcase on escalators because that was just too much. People are moving fast. And you all are not very gracious at airports when a rookie escalator rider is up there. So, you know, we worked with that. Um, and it, 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 was, it was doing great. And, um, you know, so we packed light. When you go to the airport, it's great for people watching. All kinds of just people. And... Um, Learn something very quick. Everybody has baggage, right? Some of you are like, I don't have baggage. Okay, everybody has luggage. You all have things you've collected in life, and you're pulling them with you everywhere. At the airport, it's easy because you see everybody's luggage and baggage, and you're hoping that the person with four carry-ons and homemade kimchi under one arm and... Uh, you know, 18 pillows over here and nine bottles of water. They're not the one that's going to sit in the center aisle because I fly southwest and it's a free-for-all when it comes to seating. And, you know, you're just hoping, please don't let them sit in this row because they have so much stuff. Um, we all have stuff we're carrying around. Baggage, luggage. And I learned from my nine-year-old, he reminded me when we went through pre TSA pre and his little thing went through the tunnel and they started looking at what they thought was inside his bag. We don't like strangers going through our luggage. My nine-year-old's bag was picked for someone to go through. And he's already a little prone to anxiety. This put him over the edge. 
You know, it's like, are they going to take Pikachu? I was like, trust me, they don't want Pikachu, you know. So what are they doing? Are they going to give me my stuff? And, you know, he's all nervous. The guy's opening up Chase's suitcase, and he's looking through Chase's things, and he's getting more and more anxious. He doesn't want some stranger going through his stuff. And you can kind of look down the row at every aisle, at every one of those kiosks. There's another traveler having a stranger go through their stuff, and they all have the same facial expression. And people are starting to lose it. They're feeling offended. They're feeling indignant. And I'm trying to explain to him. I'm like, listen, buddy, these people are trained. They're just looking in there to see if there's anything in there that could hurt you or hurt somebody else. And they zeroed in on, I guess, he had a pack of, of wipes and they're next to two prescription bottles that on the screen just looked like a rectangle with two grenades next to it. And because they're doing their job, they thought, we better take a closer look at this. And I explained it to him. He's like, buddy, the nice gentleman here, he's going to just look through everything. And when he sees that it's just your prescription medicine and, and wipes, he's going to, well, I said, just relax. But what about, I said, just relax, you know, which doesn't help um, when I'm yelling at him in anxiety, telling him to stop being anxious. But eventually, he closes the thing up. He says, you're good to go. You're clear. And you move on. And it just reminds me, we're all carrying stuff with us. Everything that you've experienced in life, you've collected, and you carry it with you. And some of us travel light, and some of us pack everything. And everywhere you go, you're, you're bringing baggage with you. Let me tell you something. Most of us, maybe not all of us, the longer you've been in a church or many churches or different churches, the more religious baggage you have. You all have brought with you this morning every church experience you've ever had, good, bad, and indifferent. And you're bringing that into the, into the family today. Some of you have had bad experiences with pastors, and you're bringing that here today. You've had bad experience with church. You've had bad experience with church people. You've had bad experience with programs. You've had bad experience with money in church or people in church or ministry in church or rules in church. And you're bringing that with you. It's possible some of you have gotten some bad teaching that you don't know is bad. You accepted it as true, and it's shifting the way that you look, and you're bringing that with you this morning, and the whole way you live is flawed, and you don't know it because you got some bad teaching, and you took it as true, and you live that way. I'm a pastor. I bring baggage with me too. All my experiences with church people. A few good, and then... I'm just kidding. Good experiences and then other ones. And I bring that with me every time I come to church. Most of my, the overwhelming majority of my experiences with Christians have been wonderful. Then there have been some others, and those seem to be the ones that are easier to remember and longer lasting than others, and I carry that with me. The closer you get to people, you start to realize what kind of stuff they're carrying with them. And sometimes it stinks. And you know what we need? We need an examiner that we trust that will let go into our baggage and say, you know what? You're, you've packed some things that are unnecessary. And they're not helpful. And I want to pull that out for your sake and for the sake of everybody who's journeying with you. That's a visual of what sanctification looks like in many ways. It's a big word the Bible uses, but it simply means sanctification is the process of becoming more and more holy, more and more like Jesus, and less and less unlike Jesus. 
one of, but not the only way he does that is he's constantly going through the things we've collected in life. And he zooms in on them. And he tries to show us on the screen of our life, here's this thing I've outlined. Do you see it? This is unsafe. This is unhealthy. This is unnecessary. And I want to remove that from you. And the difference between the person who receives that and who doesn't is reason and teachability. If you're a reasonable person, you're willing to say, I had no idea that thing I was carrying with me so long was really dangerous. I had no idea. Yes, please remove it from me. The other side of it is, I know everything, and we want to get into an argument with God and say, how dare you point at my baggage and say that it's harmful for me? I'm holding on to that. You heard Suba just describe it earlier. Unforgiveness, unresolved grudges, shame, guilt, things that we won't let go and we pack. We carry it with us everywhere. People around you know it stinks, and it's hurting you, and it's hurting them. All through the book of Acts, one way you could read it, one way you could organize it is how God dealt with the baggage of people who lived in the first century. Nearly every person who has a God encounter, whether it's directly with God or with another Christian, nearly every time, or at least when we get those characters developed a little bit more, you'll see God really zeroing in on some baggage. You see it with Saul zeroes right in on some baggage. You see it with early apostles. You see it, really, what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks is how he dealt with one group of people called the Jews. Because up until a couple chapters ago, Christianity was pretty much exclusively a mono-ethnic movement, meaning it was just primarily one race of people. Now, not exclusively. There were some exceptions here. But up to this point, the message of what Jesus did was brought first to the Jews in Acts, in, Acts, in the beginning of Acts. It spread and it thrived in a nearly completely Jewish community in a city of Jerusalem. And then a little bit at a time, it started to leak out in the surrounding areas. But I want you to know that one of the main things God goes after, we see it especially aggressively in these last couple of chapters, and it, and it spills out through the rest of the New Testament. He goes after some bad teaching they got about how God thinks about people outside their group. If you were a first century Jew, you would have seen the world divided into two groups of people, Jews and everybody else us and them, the chosen and the defiled. A Jew was someone who by ethnicity was completely pure Hebrew blood from the same family tree, from the same father. And all the promises of the Old Testament that they were God's chosen, that he made a covenant with them, that he loved them, that he had... Uh, uh, promises and blessings specifically for them, they held on to that. And the relationship between Jews and Gentiles was very complicated through the Old Testament. You have some stories where they, they absolutely welcomed people inside to their Jewish family. Two examples, real quick. Ruth was not, we, we talked about her a, f a couple months ago, Ruth was not a pure-blooded Hebrew woman. Do you know where she was from? What, what, what group was she from? 
Moab, right, the Moabites, she was a Gentile. But there's this remarkable statement she makes to Boaz. She says, your God will be my God. And then she goes a huge step further. Your people will be my people. And what you have is someone who made a full conversion from paganism to Judaism and was welcomed in. Rahab in the story of Joshua and the wall of Jericho is another example of someone who was not Jewish by birth, but because of her act of faithfulness to God by uh, you know, cooperating with the spies after the destruction of Jericho, she was brought in and was given, you know, she was accepted into the Jewish, the Jewish life and the Jewish family. So you have some exceptions. But a couple hundred years later, at the time that Acts is written, you need to know that most of, most of what Jews thought about Gentiles came from the teaching they got from their rabbis. And what the rabbis were doing is they weren't only teaching the Old Testament. They were teaching above and beyond the Old Testament about how dirty and unclean the Gentiles were. For example, in the time of Jesus, the rabbis were teaching in their temples that Jewish people, if you walk down the street with a Gentile, you were supposed to hold your coat or your outer garment as close to you as you could. Because if you even brushed up against the clothes of a Gentile, the rabbis taught that you were ceremonially defiled and unclean. And the only way you could be that you could reverse that is by either burning all of those clothes because they came in contact with a Gentile, or you had to go through full-blown ceremonial purification. That's how wide the gap had been. In fact, we have today, we have unearthed some of the rabbinic teaching at that age. There was one really aggressive group of rabbis that were teaching that the existence of the Gentiles, the only reason they existed was so that God could keep the coals of hell hot. That's how repugnant Jews thought Gentiles were. And so what I'm submitting to you is understanding, I'm not trying to take a shot at the race of Jewish people. Thank God for our Jewish brothers and sisters. Because of them, we have Christ. At the same time, God is starting to deal with some of the baggage of Jewish people who are getting saved. He's starting to deal with some, they got saved, they have an experience with Jesus, but he's starting to deal with some of the baggage that says, he's starting to say, I have a plan for the Gentiles too. And it's pushing up against everything that they had ever learned. And last week, Pastor James showed us what happened when Peter, God dealt with Peter's baggage. First, Peter stays in the house of Simon the Tanner with deals with some of his baggage. Then he has a vision where God says, don't you keep calling unclean what I have made clean. And then he takes it a step further by going to see Cornelius, a Roman Gentile. And the Holy Spirit falls on them. They believe, they convert, they speak in tongues, their lives are changed. He goes back and tells the Jerusalem leaders, the church, and the, 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 the original language says the priests who got saved. And they're like, whoa, 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 this can't be true. How were you in the house of a Gentile? You need to go through purification rituals. And he says, no, let me tell you what happened. And he brought the truth to them and they stopped objecting and they started praising because they were reasonable. God went into their baggage and said, you've got an attitude towards a race of people that is prideful, that is arrogant, that is inconsistent with scripture. And they said, Lord, you're right. 
we will stop. We uproot that bad teaching and we receive your truth. Wow, what humility. Teachability is like a prerequisite for spiritual growth. If you think you know everything, you'll never grow. And here were people who knew more of the old scriptures than you and I will ever know, and they were teachable. But their feelings towards Gentiles were complex because I'll put this on the screen for you. Jews divided Gentiles into three basic categories. First, there were straight-up pagans. And these were people who were not Jewish by birth. They had no Jewish blood in them, and they completely rejected Israel's God or they lived in complete ignorance. They weren't even pretending to to follow God at all. They just lived their own way. And in the Roman Empire, it was mostly worship of the gods. And these people were the worst of the worst in the minds of the Jews. These are the ones for whom the coals of hell were hot. But there were two other categories of Gentiles that they had more compassion for and grace for. Second category was a term they used called a God-fearing Gentile. These were people who weren't born as Jews, but somewhere along the line heard of Israel's God and accepted him as the one true God, and they followed him, and they sought him, and they obeyed him, but they fell short of making a full-blown conversion to Judaism. And what that meant was if you wanted to be a full-blown convert to Judaism, that meant for men, circumcision, no matter what age you were, I'll just let that settle in for a second, and, and baptism by their baptismal rites. And then you completely left your uh, Gentile customs, customs, calendar, festival, laws behind, and you took on the complete Jewish living. And then you became the third category, and that was a proselyte. A, uh, a proselyte was a seeker of Israel's God, just like a God-fearing Gentile, but they fully converted to Judaism, which meant they said, I so want to follow the, the God of Israel that I will, I will be circumcised, I will be baptized, I will leave my old customs behind, I will adopt their customs. In fact, you see in Acts chapter 6, one of the original like deacons that they appointed was Nicholas the proselyte. So even in the early church in Jerusalem, there was a space in their leadership for Gentiles, but not just any Gentile, not the pagan ones, Gentiles who converted to Christianity and also converted to Judaism. And one of the questions the Jews wrestled with through the end of the New Testament was how Jewish do Gentile Christians have to be in order for us to accept them into our Jewish Christian family? Because in their mind, it wasn't only about converting to Jesus through faith. That's what the Israelites had to do, but Gentiles had to do more. They had to convert to all the Jewish traditions. And that's where Paul came along and tried to say, no, faith in God is enough. You don't have to do all these extra works. Faith in God is enough. Here's what's interesting. Up to this point in Acts, we've seen a few non-Jews or people that were a little ambiguous. We're not sure. We see them get saved. Acts 8, the gospel leaves Jerusalem and goes into this region where, where the Jerusalem Jews had major issues in a place called Samaria. And there's a Samarian, Samaritan awakening. And there's conversions there. And the Jerusalem church hears about this and says, I don't know about those people. They're the ones that have their own temple, their own way of worshiping God. We both say we worship the one true God, but they say their temple is right and we say ours is right. In fact, there was such a rivalry between these groups that just before the time of Jesus, the Samaritans snuck into, into Jerusalem and went into their temple and left all kinds of bloody stuff all over the temple to defile their temple as like a, a way to prank them and uh, that they couldn't worship the Lord. They defiled their temple. There was a long-standing nasty rivalry between Samaritans and Jews. However, by ethnic, the Samaritans were an ethnic blend. 
They were half Gentile blood, but they were also half Hebrew blood. So they weren't full-blooded Jewish, but they weren't full-blooded Gentiles. So the first conversions we see outside of Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, we see it in Samaria in Acts chapter 8. And they send the apostles down to check it out. They see that it's legit, and they rejoice. And so they're like, okay, God can work in half-Gentiles. Then a few verses later, we see the Ethiopian treasurer, the Ethiopian eunuch, Ethiopia and Africa, right? But this person isn't in Africa at the time of our story. He is coming back from worshiping in Jerusalem. And what is he reading? He's reading the scriptures. So he's not a total pagan. He might be a God-fearer, maybe somebody who was natively from Ethiopia who is following some of the Jewish way of life and is seeking God. He's probably one of two things. He's either a proselyte who fully converted to Judaism, which I won't go too deep in this morning because the age of the group, but there's a difficulty with that because of another detail we have in the story, but we'll leave that there. I don't know if he could have been circumcised even if he wanted to. However, he could have been a diaspora Jew, someone who... Uh, born to a Jewish family and then ended up in Ethiopia somehow, but kept the traditions. And either way, this is not a pagan. This is a God-fearing or a proselyte man who's converted. So the church started getting used to that. Then we meet Cornelius. And which of those three categories does Cornelius fall into? Bible tells us very, very clearly. Two. Acts chapter 10, verse 2 says, Cornelius, a God-fearing and devout man, as was his household. So all I'm trying to say to you at this point is the God is dealing with the baggage of the Jewish Christians in the way that they viewed Gentiles. He's dealing with it in episodes through real stories with people that are challenging the bad teaching they got over the year. And right in front of their eyes are being presented with God's plan for the Gentiles is to save them. But who's going to tell them about Jesus? The Jews. God's going to use the Jews, their understanding of Scripture, the eyewitness reports they got from the, from the people who saw Jesus crucified and risen from the dead, and the power of God released in their life. They're going to rely on that to carry that gospel message, not only to the Jews, but across every ethnic boundary that there is. And so far, they've been, they've, they've been introduced to proselytes and God-fearing Gentiles. But what about total, complete pagans, the worst of the worst? They haven't seen any of them saved yet up to this point. And that changes in the story we're going to study today. So notice with me the first gospel preachers at Antioch, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Meanwhile, that's an important word there. That means everything you're about to read, Luke is giving you a timestamp. He wants you to know that what you just read in the paragraphs before this happened simultaneously with what we're about to read. Now, what did we just read? We just read that people, the Christians in Jerusalem, were finding out that Gentiles were receiving salvation and the promised Holy Spirit. And the reason Luke says meanwhile is because he doesn't want you to assume that, what ha- that the believers in this section knew that that event had happened. All the believers that you're reading about in this story had no idea Gentiles were being saved yet, okay? No idea, or it's very unlikely that they did. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, which is present-day Lebanon, Cyprus, which is an island off the coast of Israel, 
and Antioch of Syria. Now, there's a lot of Antiochs back then. It was a common name. This one is specific. This Antioch is the capital city of the Roman province of Syria. At this time, it is the third most important city in the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. It has a population, are you ready for this? 500,000 people. That's like Baltimore size. It's huge. 65,000 of that population are Jewish fugitives who have resettled there. So it's a huge uh, Jewish resettling place. And the reason why was that that was one of the few cities where they offered free Roman citizenship. It was a center of industry. It was a center of commerce. It was a center of wealth. Even people from the East, we know we, archaeological evidence has shown us that, that, that populations from China and India and the East part of Asia had come there and settled there. It is a very ethnically diverse city. And what we see is that believers who back in Acts chapter 8 who were living in Jerusalem at the time when Stephen got stoned and the government started cracking down on Christians and they fled as fugitives, part of them, it's showing them how far north they scattered. They scattered, some went as far as Lebanon, others went to the island of Cyprus, and then a group of them got to Antioch of Syria, 65,000 of them got there. They preached the word of God there. Let me stop for a second. Who were the main preachers of the gospel in this city of 500,000? Who were they? Jewish Christians. Was it the apostles? Hello? Were the apostles here preaching? No. Peter? No. Saul? Not yet. James, John, Bartholomew, the other crew? No. It is common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, average, seminary, uneducated Christians. And everywhere they traveled, they took the gospel message. Can I tell you, that is totally ordinary for ancient Christians to just... Normal, ordinary, average Christians just told people about the gospel everywhere they went. They told people about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, and about heaven. They just told people everywhere they went, and people got saved every day. People by the thousands came to Jesus, not just through the apostles and church services and conventions, but through normal, everyday people having conversations with lost people about strange ideas that through the power of God working through them, through the facts of the gospel, and through the invisible power of the Holy Spirit working on the hearer's life, people were getting saved. That was normal and ordinary, wasn't it? Go back every time Acts says the church continued to grow. It's because normal, ordinary people were preaching. All through Acts, it was just normal, normal, normal. If you would have asked a Christian, what is, it, what is an ordinary day in your life? What is an ordinary experience in Christianity like for you? What's an ordinary year for you like? Every one of those early believers would talk about daily encounters with Jesus and sharing the gospel with people. It was just normal. Here's my question. Is that first century ordinary Christianity still normal Christianity today? Is that the way Christians normally live today? Let me just make it personal. Is that your life? Is that your passion? Is that your urgency? Is that your, is that your expectation? Do you get up thinking, I'm going back to school in just a couple weeks? I'm going in person? I'm going to be around my friends. That means more opportunities for me to find ways to talk to them about spiritual things. 
or I get to go to work this week. You're going to spend more time in work than anything else in life that you do. Why wouldn't God want to purpose that for his glory? Why wouldn't he look at your work as an act of worship? You'll spend more time working than in church. I would submit to you that normal, ordinary Christianity, you wouldn't call it normal and ordinary today. You would call it extraordinary and unusual Christianity. And what you call normal and what you call extraordinary, unusual, kamikaze Christianity, can I suggest to you, is just normal in God's kingdom? You probably need to think about that for a while. I can kind of tell by the glazed over looks on your faces. So I'll keep going. Verse 20. They did preach, but they only preached to the Jews. But another group showed up, another group of believers. They didn't come from Jerusalem. They weren't part of that group. They were another group of believers. They came from Cyprus and Cyrene. And here's what they did. They weren't professional preachers. They were just normal Christians. They began preaching to the Gentiles, the pagan Gentiles, not the proselytes, not the God-fearing one. The first time in the whole Bible, we see a specific evangelism outreach to totally irreligious, worldly people. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what was their strategy? Did they do movies in the Colosseum? Did they do sidewalk Sunday school? Did they have big tent crusades? Did they bring in a speaker? Did they, you know, did they bring in some former, you know, gladiator who gave his heart to Jesus? And now, dude, what did they, none of those things? They just began talking to lost people about Jesus because guess what? They didn't write them off because, yeah, there's a lot of people there that worship God, worship to the gods. There's a lot of people there lost in idolatry and paganism. There's a lot of really, really, really rich people there who had filled their lives with every kind of pleasure, and you're thinking they wouldn't have any. But there's a group of people in that city that God knew those people's hearts. Yes, they were pagan, and they didn't know about Jesus, but they were sick and tired of the system of the gods. It was doing nothing for them. All the money they had wasn't fixing the deep part of their soul. The gods they prayed to did nothing for them. They had no durable sense of purpose, hope, or identity. It was just pleasure. And when these basic run-of-the-mill Christians get there, they start talking to them about simply the Lord Jesus, just the basic facts about who he is, his life, his death, his resurrection, his, soon, his, his return to earth, his, his, the, the eternity in heaven. He talk, they talk to them about sin and debt to God and how there can be forgiveness. It says the power of the Lord was with them and a large number, and Luke uses this word, these Gentiles, not just the Gentiles we've already read about, not just the God-fearing ones, not just the ones who were already friendly to the idea of Jesus, but these complete pagans, a large number of these pagans did two things. They believed and turned to the Lord. They believed and they turned to the Lord. And both of those things are critical. It, it takes those two things added together for conversion to take place. It's not just to be able to say, hey, I believe and everything. Oh, see right there, a picture of, of modern day Antioch of Syria or Arendelle or wherever that was, right? It, it takes not just believing, it takes a turning to. I know tons of people who will say, oh, I, I believe in the Lord. You know, I get into spiritual conversations. Oh, I believe in God. I sat around a table. I'll tell you more about this story 
this week and a lot about it next week. Sat around a table recently with uh, 12 or 13 brand new friends. I've known them all less than a year. Um, and as the conversation is going, most of them, I don't think any of them at this point in the conversation knew about my spiritual background. But, you know, uh, one person just started volunteering. Oh, she had used the F word about 13 times already in 15 minutes and was just generally pretty angry. So I was just trying to let her get off her chest, whatever she needed to get off her chest. And then randomly she, she brings up, oh, yeah, yeah, I used to. Well, I used to go to church all the time. I went to church every Sunday up the time I was 16. I know all about being born again. I was born again for a while, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Like, she knows all the... She started spitting out verses and this and that and the third. And I'm like, wow, okay. I would not have guessed that this person had that level of religious vocabulary stored up in there. And there's a whole lot more of that story that I'll let tumble out later. But in the later on of this story she would say to me very clearly, oh, I absolutely believe in God. And yet, nothing about her present day life indicates that. There's a belief, but there wasn't a turning to. She would say, I believe in him. I've just turned away from living the Christian life. And in her mind, that equals I'm okay with God. At the beginning of the conversation, it did. At the end of the conversation, it didn't you see that these Gentiles heard a simple but powerful presentation of the gospel coming through the lives of people who obviously were convinced that what they were saying was the truth because they had experienced it for themselves. They believed and they turned to the Lord. Let's keep reading. Then we are reintroduced to a dude named Barnabas. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, and this is the part where you kind of like cringe, you're like, okay, Syrian Antioch is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It takes a little while. They didn't have email or, you know, um, TikTok or any of these other types of ways that we communicate today, any of the social media engines. They don't have them. It takes a little while for a message to get 300 miles from Syrian Antioch down to Jerusalem. And it gets to Jerusalem, and the people in Jerusalem find out pagans are getting saved now. We've got our brothers. They didn't call one another. Jewish people would never call one another Christian because Christ means Messiah, and they would never use that word. They called each other brothers. In fact, Christians didn't even call themselves Christians at first. They were named, we'll get that next week. I'll get back to this story. But, you know, they're just saying, we're hearing some of our brothers have gone to the pagans. And they're receiving salvation. And when you read this story, you're like, they heard what had happened and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And you might be thinking, they're sending Barnabas up there to shut it down. Well, who was Barnabas? We met him back in Acts chapter 4. Barnabas isn't even his name. It's his nickname. Right? His real name is Joseph, and we meet him in Acts chapter 4. How do we meet him? He finds salvation through Jesus. He becomes part of the church in Jerusalem in the early days, and they're going through some financial trouble. They're trying to figure out how do we do ministry at the same time we're completely pulling out of the Jewish economic system. We have no built-in way to care for the needs. We have no government. We, we're not paying into the Jewish economy. We're not getting the distri- distribution. They're trying to figure out how all that works. And so they decided this experiment with communal living, which leads to them being very poor later on, which is another story for next week. But they try this experiment with communal living. And Barnabas comes along, and he has a piece of property he wasn't doing anything with. It's part of his portfolio. It increases net worth. It was an asset that he had. He wanted to give an offering bigger than his wallet would allow, so he went and liquidated an asset. He sold 
some land, some island land on, on uh, Cyprus, or Cyrene, right? Cyrene. He's, he sells a piece of land there, and he takes all of the proceeds, not 10%, not 20%, 100% of the proceeds. And some of you are like, Pastor, I know I've been kicking back at Old Testament giving, saying we shouldn't do that, but now that I'm hearing it, Old Testament giving sounds better. Like, you know, that's 10% is better than 100%. But he brings the whole thing, and he gives that entire offering to the church, and as a result, they give him the nickname, the son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. He's an encourager. He was an encourager by giving a big offering. And some of you are thinking, oh, here it comes. No, I'll just say as a pastor, yes. When God moves on individuals' hearts to give big offerings to the work of the Lord, it is absolutely an encouragement. Because it says it wasn't a dumb idea for us to leave everything we left to come and take on this assignment. It says that we're together. It says that these dreams and visions that the Lord has given us that cost money, they can happen. They can move ahead. It's a huge encouragement. It just, it, it, it is not the only way, but one of the ways God injects life and encouragement into a local ministry. Why would you send an encourager if you wanted them to stamp it out? The Jerusalem church wasn't trying to stamp this out. They sent the encourager. Their hearts are warming towards what God's doing among the Gentiles. They would have sent the bad guy. They would have sent the guy with the heavy handedness to shut down. They sent the encourager. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy. And he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. It says he arrived and saw. Which of your senses is Luke talking about here? What do you see with? I'm trying to ask really easy questions today. Your eyes. He doesn't, it doesn't say he heard something or he tasted something. It says he saw something that filled him with joy. What do you suppose he saw? Unbelievers? Yes. That more specifically, I don't know if seeing unbelievers would have filled him with joy, would have filled him with urgency. He saw changed lives. Let's be more specific. What kinds of lives? What kinds of people? Pagans and who else? Jews. What's that? God-fearing? Here's what he's seeing. Let me help you. He sees literally, for the first time in history, people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every economic class, every vocational background, men, women, boys, girls, he sees them all sitting around the same table as family, as sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. This is the first time this has ever happened. He couldn't go to Jerusalem and see an ethnically diverse church. This is the first time anybody saw a church with people with with Jews and Gentiles, and among the Gentiles, multiple diverse ethnicities among the Gentiles, and he sees them all together in a church, worshiping the same God as brothers and sisters, meeting the needs of their community, giving to, to, to feed the hungry and to clothe people. He hears, he hears the message of the gospel being preached. He sees thousands upon thousands upon thousands. All of a sudden, he sees a church exploding. This hasn't been happening in Jerusalem in years. 
And now there's a new kind of church, not because of their theology, but because it is tumbling through ethnic boundaries. And what are we working for? How does the Bible describe heaven? People of every tongue, every tribe, every race coming from every corner, sitting down together as equals, as brothers and sisters with the same dad. And he's tasting the future right here on earth. That's what the church is. This church is supposed to be a dress rehearsal for what is to come. It's supposed to feel familiar to us so it's not foreign when we get there. And he sees it and he encourages them. Here's his message. Don't quit. Remain true to the Lord. What an odd message from an encourager to a church that is in its honeymoon period. Why do you suppose he picks that message? They're seeing people getting saved left and right. It is growing. Think about the new friendships. Think about the richness of this. I will tell you, when you recognize that there has been an offense and the opportunity for it to dissolve is there with both parties, I will tell you, forgiveness can come much more rapidly than the offense came. I mean, there, there have been times in my life where someone has just genuinely said to me or I've said to them, I am so sorry. And however many years that offense was, the, the repentance and the, and, the, and the hurt that was so deep and so long, when you see genuine repentance, it just like dissolves years of all that. And you look at all these walls and barriers that are breaking down in this new power that is taking over a city. And he says, listen, this is wonderful. This is real. But I encourage you to stay true to the Lord with all your heart. Don't quit. Don't give up. What's he saying? What he's telling them is that Christianity is not always going to be the same level of emotional output you're experiencing today. It's going to get tough. He could say from experience, look, this is very real. This is a honeymoon period. We are growing and Christianity is about that. But it's also about a commitment to Jesus that holds me when I share my faith and nobody's getting saved and my heart isn't fluttering and they're not singing my favorite song and the message didn't scratch that itch behind my ear and somebody treats me bad and we don't see growth month over month over month. I still have a relationship with Jesus that I can stay true to. Because he knows if you experience Acts 1-8, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll also experience Acts 8-1. There will be persecution and at times you'll be scattered. Why is he saying this to them? Because he knows every relationship we have in life, including the ones we have with the Lord, every relationship is tested. They're all tested. Every good relationship. I shared this illustration in, 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 in the early service. I'm, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of like a marriage. You know, most couples who come to me for premarital counseling get a little standoffish with me when I suggest to them that maybe the way you feel about your fiance today, two weeks before the wedding and two weeks and 10 hours before your honeymoon, it may not be exactly the same way you feel about them 10 years from now. Oh, not us. Oh no, we've already committed every day. We will write poetry to one another. We will mow the lawn together, holding hands, each with one hand on the lawnmower. We will always ride in a kayak together because we always just paddle the same way and want to go to the same things. We'll never speak angrily. Every morning we will look lovingly into one another's eyes without breaking eye contact as we sip our latte and pour scalding hot water into our lap without blinking. That's how in love we are. You don't understand. Okay. Now, what I don't say is, you know what? Someday you're going to wake up and the other shoe is going to drop and marriage is going to be misery. That's not true either. 
That's garbage. That's what that group, you know, that table I was sitting around at that party? When I sat down, they said, oh, you can jump in the conversation. We're just talking about how to negotiate down your child support. I was like, okay, uh, well, pick up where you left off. Don't let me. I found out I'm the only person in that table of 12 different family units that was still married to the person that I originally got married to. They were all either divorced or remarried or somewhere in the process. And the one couple over here, I find out they're engaged. And so I hone in on them. And when the conversation died out, I said, so, so what's the date? When's the marriage? And she goes, well, we already bought a house. And we, well, whenever we get to it, two or three years, what's the rush? And the guy next to me says, yeah, it's no rush. All marriages is a piece of paper every way. Anyway, and the whole table starts laughing. I'm like, oh, boy. Like, I need to get out more. Like, I need to, I need to hear these. These are not normally the conversations I hear, but I need to hear them. Because every one of them around the table would say, one day I woke up next to my spouse and you know what? I didn't want to look at their eyes when I drink my coffee. And I wanted to know why they kept putting their socks on my dresser. Okay, I'm, now I'm really dealing with people's business. I'm sorry. <laughs> and it didn't happen suddenly. It happened gradually. You know, like whatever that old cheesy song is, they lost the loving feeling and now it's gone. And what Barnabas is trying to say is that every relationship goes through these types of periods. I will tell you this, and my wife I think would say the same, although I've learned after 25 years of marriage, I don't answer for her and I don't speak for her. But I think she would agree in saying, I do not love my wife the way I did on our wedding day. I love her more maturely and more maturely. <laughs> I, I love her differently. I think I love her better. I love her more completely. The love I felt for her on my wedding day, but listen, it was very, very, very real. It was as real, it was absolutely as real as I could have understood in that moment. But it's different. There are some challenges. My love wasn't challenged too hard at that point. Until you start sharing a sink and a thermostat. And you start figuring out, you told your mom that? But I'm your husband. Why are you telling her not? You, you get into some of these things. And there are days you wake up and you don't feel like writing poetry. Oh, pastor, we do. You're lying. You're lying. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're not in love. But what you learn, you lean to learn on commitment more than your feelings. My feelings are not constant, but my commitment can be. I'm thankful that on the days that she woke up, it's just like, you know, you just don't, you have less hair, bigger, you've developed some more OCD issues, you're still not spontaneous. I'm like, I plan to be spontaneous. I set aside time and budget to be spontaneous. We have a spontaneous column. It's like, that is the definition of OCD. I'm thankful that she doesn't just say, eh, so we shouldn't be married anymore. She loves me because her love has matured. She stayed true to her husband, even when that initial emotional output of the first part of our marriage changed. Marriage is not just a piece of paper. It's not drudgery. It's a sacred commitment. I made not only to Kendra, I made it to the Lord. I made it to him too. The three of us are in covenant. Here's, it's not a message about marriage. 
you can take something from it if you want to. It, it's not simple and it's not easy. A lot of you could testify like, Pastor, when the rubber meets the road, that is, yeah, it is. It's difficult. Where do we go? We go to this relationship that even when I was faithless, he was faithful. Even when I've given him no reason to feel good about me, his commitment to me is way beyond my own feelings. And what Barnabas is saying, listen, your feelings are real, but stay true to the Lord. Stick with it. Don't give up. If you wake up and the fire's not there, go capture that again. Don't ride it all off. Stay true to the commitment you've made to the Lord. Don't stay true to the feeling because if you're a feeling chaser in Christianity, you're going to be like this your whole life. You see, God was dealing with the baggage of the first century Christians of bad teaching that they got that was holding them back. They were taught this group of people, write them off, stay clear from them. God doesn't have a purpose for them. And they're seeing, man, God has, God has a plan, not only for them, God wants to bring them into our family, not as, as our siblings. And for the rest of the New Testament, the Jews had to figure out, now how do we do that? How much like us do they really need to be for them to truly be family? We still do that today. We still do that today. And someone new gets saved. I'm trying, I know, I'm getting it like this. It's 12:14. How about I just pray? <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you still deal with our baggage. Worship team, why don't you come? What is it in your life with every head bow and every eye closed? What is it in your life? that God's showing you on the screen today, the screen of your life that says, son, daughter, this is something you've carried with you that's not healthy for you. It is not necessary for you. It is holding you back. It's weighing you down. It stinks. Everything else in the suitcase is becoming contaminated by this thing you keep carrying with you. And he's saying, I love you enough and I love the people I've sent you to be a light among enough to point this out to you and to show you truth. And now I defer to your will. My will is to remove that and to heal you and to make you whole and to release you from that burden you've been carrying. But now you have a choice. Do you trust the examiner enough? Just like the early Jews did, they trusted God enough to look at things they had held true for centuries and they trusted God enough, they were teachable enough to say that if we've thought wrong about a group of people, we will let it go in order that we can be instruments in his hands to see a mighty revival sweep across this earth.